Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Lara Grillo about her brand new book, An Intimate Rebuke, Female Genital Power in Ritual and Politics in West Africa. An Intimate Rebuke was published in 2018 by Duke University Press. Lara is affiliated faculty in the Department of Theology at Georgetown University. Her areas of expertise are in comparative religion, the anthropology of religions, women and gender studies, and post-colonial theory. Lara Grillo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be talking to you about An Intimate Rebuke. And I am too. This book was just such a discovery as, as I was reading it. And I usually begin by asking interviewees if they can tell me a little bit about their background, which I will. But I think before we get into that, I must ask you the question that is burning for all of the listeners. What is female genital power? Okay. Um, good question. So I, um, I use the term as in reference to a widespread, ancient and widespread ritual. Um, But I also use it to refer to the principle behind the power to which the women who conduct the ritual appeal. So I really want to begin by talking about what the principle is, and that is this ancient, widely held, traditional religious belief that postmenopausal women these women elders, also known as the mothers, are the living embodiment of the ancestors. So as such, they represent the more ultimate moral authority and the duties to protect the values that are the fundament of society. Um, So these women elders are believed to have an innate spiritual power to enforce those moral mandates. And the seat of that power their innate embodied power are the genitalia. Um, and I want to put parenthetically here, it's, I emphasize the genitals as the vulva, the buttocks, the breasts, but especially the vulva um, as this, the, the living altar um, and the, the, the seat literally, of that power, much as the Akan stool is the seat of power and the altar of that power, the ancestral power. Um, and I say that because it's not the vagina, which I think has been a, a, a problem, but I'll get to that later. So for at least five centuries that I was able to trace, the mothers have made this appeal to their genitals to deploy the power to protect the populace. And um, it's actually a ritual of anti-witchcraft, but it's also an act of spiritual warfare. So this is a very fierce um, and a very fierce 
power to which they appeal um, that has is meant to have true efficacy in the world. Um, so what happens is that in times of social calamity, like epics, epidemics or uh, terrible wars or other threats to the community, the women gather to perform the secret nocturnal rite. They strip naked, they, they slap their genitals and their breasts, um, and they curse the violations of the moral order in order to ward off evil. They can even evict death from the village. Um, so some of the principal um, manifestations, they, they're smeared in white kaula river clay. That's a spiritually potent substance of, of purification. They wield branches or they're pounding the ground with their old pestles in order to curse evildoers and evict death. And sometimes they bathe their genitals in water and that they use that water as aspersion to lay a trap for witches. Um, and it's taboo, especially for men, to look on the mother's nakedness or to see the right, which is so potent that those who defy this sanction to look upon the mothers um, risk death. So, um, in addition to evicting these unseen forces of evil, they also use their genital power to condemn violations, reprehensible acts um, in society. So, in infractions, social infractions range from range from the abuse of a of an individual woman, or reference to women's genitals as an insult, or a lack of respect for women's rights or, or um, an infringement on the purview of their own business dealings, like their, the own domain of women's business. And to punish the offending man, they would gather in his compound at night and hurl these curses and beat his roof and sometimes urinate or defecate on his doorstep. So again, very, you know, um, adamant, um, the word militaristic, you know, comes to mind. Um, I underscore this because, again, throughout I throughout the book, I really try and differentiate between the mothers as these postmenopausal women who are managing this office of power as moral. Um, um, what's the word? The as vigilant kind of overseers of morality and motherhood or actual mothers and all that is generally associated, especially by in the West with motherhood, soft, nurturing um, protectors. Um, while they, these mothers are pr certainly protectors and nurturing of the protection of the community, they do it in very aggressive ways. And I think one of the, the other reason I mentioned this um, early on is that I think that scholars have often um, puzzled over the aggressive nature of these acts and, and certainly the colonists did in Africa when they encountered these things um, because it was so unexpected and couldn't really, um, uh, it, didn't, it didn't jive with the view of women's role as meek and mild nurturers. So, um, so I, I, these female elders use, 
you know, deploy this female genital power, as I said, in these spiritual rites, these secret nocturnal rites, but they also call on their so-called bottom power in the context of daytime public manifestations, often to protest or threaten rulers who are abusing their worldly authority. So um, this has happened throughout history. In pre-colonial times, the mother's authority would be marshaled to sanction rulers in both senses of the word. They would invest male rulers with the full complement of power by making them um, symbolically ascribing to them all of the qualities of the mothers of women and of mothers and invest them with some of this moral power so that they could wield their power with moral constraints and, and uh, I wanted to say sagesse, wisdom. But... um, the female elders would also come out to check the power of any chiefs or kings or leaders who are um, who would be violating the moral mandates or over, overstepping their power or you know not not or violating the moral mandates. Um, and they would do that by executing this female genital power as a ritual to condemn them. So, and they alone could publicly chastise or, and even unseat a ruler. And when they made their veto known through the execution of these, this right, there was no appeal. So their, their power is really overarching, uh, even in leadership. So I think Um, with this kind of description, we can see just how invigorating and exciting this idea is of these fierce moral warriors on behalf right. of the community who don't conform to any expectation that um, a Westerner, a colonist might come to to understand um, the role of these postmenopausal women in society. Right. So right. how did you come to these questions and how did you arrive at this thesis that this female genital power was the underpinning moral compass of societies around West Africa? Well, initially the focus of my research for this book um, had very little to do, nothing to do with this phenomenon of female genital power. My aim was really much more simple and much more open-ended too. I, I, uh, my aim was to return to Cote d'Ivoire where I had had intimate connections uh, to a family into which I had married. I had been married for uh, almost 12 years to an Ivorian man and still had those connections there. So I wanted to return there and to witness once again a writ- this ritual called Dipri um, that I had taken it upon myself to investigate and document when I was um, first living in Cote d'Ivoire with my husband and that I eventually had written my master's thesis about at Union Theological Seminary, <laughs> of all places, um, uh, years later. So um, this had by now, my, my project to go back was now 30 years later after that first initial investigation. And I was interested in, you know, how the ritual had changed over time in the shifting social landscape um, where a virulent form of Pentecostal Christianity had done much to demonize and dismantle African traditions. And also in the interim, a civil war had 
taken place at that time, the first civil war, which had pitted northern Muslims and southern Christians against each other and had splintered the country into ethnic factions that were vying for territories, cash crops, and the wealthy metropole. So I wanted to know, how did an indigenous tradition like this still have salience, uh, or did it? you know, in this globalizing situation. So the the ritual Dipri um, is a very spectacular ritual and actually many people, tourists and others come to see it because uh, it, it's, it's a complex in, uh, uh, event. Initiates are consecrated to the genie of the river, the spirit of the river that is um, protective of the village. And once once they're consecrated, they come back to the village center and one by one enter a possession trance. And as the spirit of the genie mounts, this power mounts in their bellies, the initiates get into a, under the trance, feel this um, compulsion to stab themselves to release that power, that building power. And then the elders who have mastered this spiritual power, which is called seke, use their mastery of it to heal the initiate's wounds instantaneously. So it's, that's very spectacular because these, these wounds can be very deep. I've seen, you know, intestines coming, <laughs> protruding from these bloodied wounds. And it's very, again, very energetic and hyper-masculine and violent. Um, but so, so when these wounds are, are, you know, a bomb is placed on the wounds and the healing happens instantaneously, so it's just a puffy protrusion, which is quite amazing. Um, and then in the afternoon, there's also a kind of uh, exhibition of other spiritual uncanny powers. But because this execution of the stab is, is dangerous for the neophytes, and those initiates are very vulnerable in the possession trance, psychologically vulnerable as well as spiritually, um, physically. The women elders come out the night before and they set a snare for any witches who might be lurking or might want to harm the youths in their vulnerable state. So they perform egbiki, which is basically this right, uh, this nocturnal religious Right of anti-witchcraft at night, in the middle of the night. They strip naked, they slap their genitals to activate their own spiritual power, and they curse these, you know, would-be evildoers by pounding the ground with their pestles. And it's quite, of course, I haven't seen it because it's taboo to, to see. Uh, I've heard them do it, and it, their keening is chilling, and the pounding of the ground sounds like thunder in the night, and it is a it, it is a chilling, menacing sound. Um, so that was Deepri. Now I knew of Deepri, and I knew of the woman's right, but when I went into begin my investigation of Dipri, um, I was very surprised um, that Dipri, the villages now in the wake of the Civil War were newly animated and peopled with, you know, refugees who come out of the bankrupt cities and who were back in the villages. Dipri had become even more grander in scale and more energetic. But as I interviewed the masters of Seke, 
on the elders and notables of the villages about Dupree and the women's role, they kept saying to me, no, the women's right has nothing to do with Dupree. It's a whole separate affair. Um, and I didn't understand at first, how could it be its own a separate affair? Wasn't this the kind of, because they protect the village by actually making those aspersions. They seal the village. Nobody's allowed to go in or come out for 24 hours while they conduct Dupree because they've sealed the village with their magical protective force and anybody who comes in will fall into the witch's trap. So it seems so absolutely essential to the to the whole enterprise of Dupree. I didn't understand how it had nothing, quote unquote, nothing to do with Dupree. But as I began to learn more and more, I realized that it was actually because the women, and the I heard this over and over again, the women have a power that's stronger than anything. It's even stronger than Seke. It's stronger than the Masters of Seke. It's stronger than witches. Their power is overriding. It's preeminent. It's predominant. Um, they undertake this on their own initiative, whenever, not only at deep time, but whenever that community is threatened with evil. So, um, and then, then they reported to me that during that first civil war, when it first erupted, uh, women took it upon themselves to perform the right. Um, in most no notably, there were five Baole women. The Baole are one of the main, most uh, important of ethnic groups in Côte d'Ivoire, in the center of Côte d'Ivoire. And they are uh, considered to be of the larger Akan uh, group in West Africa. So five Baole women came out and performed the right continuously to um, condemn the outbreak of the rebel forces um, that started the civil war. And actually those, those rebel soldiers understood exactly what the women were up to um, because they were threatened by that, by the, the, the news that this right was being performed against them. And they came into the village and they uh, kidnapped the women and they uh, abused and executed all of them, except for the chief uh, who, female chief who escaped. And so we know that was a right of called Ajanu, which by the way, means between the legs, <laughs> very suggestive of where, from whence they were drawing their power. And then later still, as I was there and doing my investigation still of Dipri, um, I learned that women elders had stripped in broad daylight during public protests uh, during the civil war and against the state's immoral rulership. And so then I also learned that this was a long-standing tradition, the most famous of which in Cote d'Ivoire was in 1949, when Cote d'Ivoire was still a protectorate, a colony of the French. There was a multi-ethnic coalition of 2,000 women who marched from Abidjan to, which is a main city in the south, to Grand Bassam, which was a French colonial stronghold. And they gathered in front of the prison there where they were holding one of their national liberation leaders. And they performed Ajanu, this right of female genital power, which confounded the French who just saw them um, stripping 
gesticulating lewdly in their view, uh, hurling curses, singing, pounding pestles, branch, brandishing branches. Um, and to this day, there's still a statue commemorating the event in the center of Gompasan. They were seen as uh, national heroines. So I began to, you know, thread the beads already and say, there is something more important here that I have to understand. So um, by the time I got back, I began to trace, you know, go to the library, do some research, trace these repeated executions of female genital power. Initially, I thought that it was limited to Cote d'Ivoire, to the region, the southern region. And of course, I found uh, more and more evidence that not only was it in, beyond the reach of Cote d'Ivoire, uh, extending from cases uh Throughout West Africa, Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Nigeria, Cameroon, but I have found cases, and there are there are even videos online of such cases in Uganda and Kenya. So this is a very important history of Africa that I felt was not being told, not being highlighted, for foregrounded as it needed to be because of its obvious import throughout history. I also started to found in my research that this, I was able to document, go back to documents to of Arab travelers, to griots that documented female genital power back to the 13th century and extending all the way to the contemporary moment. So both ancient and widespread, this is a phenomenon that needed to be highlighted. And I knew I was onto something very big that needed to be both grounded in closely in the ethnographic fieldwork that I had done to, to situate it in its most intimate framework of village life and religious worldview where, you know, where it, where it's carried out um, and lived and where it has also a kind of that important moral consonance and is clearest, not clearest because also uh, maybe the clearest to especially Western observers is its instantiation on the political scale where women are manifesting politically. Um, but again, I think that oftentimes those who read it, journalists and scholars who read those instances uh, politically, miss the spiritual and religious significance, while those who read it as small religious um, idiosyncrasies of a people miss the wider import of this geographically, historically dispersed phenomenon, and also don't understand its very worldly power and how much it's informed the whole um, um, settling, the settlement of the region of West Africa, how polities were established, how ethnicities were founded. So its, its history is, is incredibly profound in all senses of the word. So let's talk a little bit about that history, because I think going back um, a few centuries can help us ground our understanding of, of this practice. And 
you make this argument, and I think one of the books you must have encountered when you went to the library um, and that you engage with and build on is Igor Kapitov's thesis of the reproduction of African societies with the kind of frontier right. thesis. And so you right. connect his work, but you build on it to show how this right um, connects many different societies who might have grown into different ethnic identities or different ethnic communities, but who share this kind of moral frontier source. And if you can explain that, because I found that to be something that was so illuminating. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the frontier thesis proposed by Igor Kapitov, and it's a book I think uh, published in the 87, um, and was very groundbreaking, was about the dispersal of populations, um, how the region was settled in the 15th through 17th century, and taking account of how um, new polities, new ethnicities were forged on this what was once a forest frontier, a still open expanse of the forest um, in territory that eventually a lot of what became Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and what he was moving away from was this idea that ethnicity was always a bloodline, that it was timeless and went back time immemorial. You know, this kind of historyless idea about, about tribes that are very racially rooted and to show that it's really the cultural expansion of, of that frontier. And it's the self-conscious, the self-conscious construction of identity on that frontier. So he was also puzzled though by what were some of the how, what were the principles on which people came together? How did they how did they negotiate, renegotiate their alliances? What what is the common underlying substrate among the ethnicities that accounts for the very palpable um, cultural coherence of the region that nobody see everybody seems to feel is there, but no one can quite get put their finger on. So my thesis is that what constitutes the core similarity isn't any structural principle because there's a lot of heterogeneity in just Cote d'Ivoire alone, matrilineal societies, patrilineal societies, dual sex uh, societies. There are societies with kings and queens. There are societies that are more self-governed. So what is it that, uh, and there's so many ethnic, eth different self-identified self ethnicities. Um, in Cote d'Ivoire alone, by common count, there are 60 ethnicities at the time of the founding of Cote d'Ivoire as uh, a nation, as a modern nation. And now there are, you know, over a hun hundred that have been counted now. So this, my thesis was that the, what constitutes this core similarity isn't any structural principle, but a more essential founding principle that dictates how relations with newcomers were negotiated. And that was according to the rules of the moral domain. And this is the where my thesis of matrifocal morality comes in. So what I'm talking about by matrifocal morality is that in West Africa, the family, the 
the nuclear family, then the primary moral bond is between mother and child, not the trifecta of mother, father, child. It's, that's not the nuclear family. So special obligations are always owed by a person to his or her siblings, the children born of the same womb. And that is true whether um, you are from a society, a matrilineal society or a patrilineal society. There's special matrifocal bond. And behind that is this principle that women are the preeminent, they are the first comers in humanity. They are the egg that the the chicken that hatched the egg, you know. So and also they have this innate spiritual power to to access the spirits like the genies of the rivers and so forth to found and to make moral pacts on which um, society can literally ground themselves on the land that is ultimately owned by the spirits. And uh, so this idea of women are the first comers, they're, they're, the mothers are, uh, the obligations to the mothers and children of the womb honor this principle of firstness that, you know, many anthropologists recognize is of the principle that you owe that newcomers owe allegiance to first comers and but the first first comers were the women so um you know kapitov let me just finish this kapitov contends that you know gee when people entered this moral uh there's this forest this forest frontier, sometimes they were freeing, the fleeing kingdoms and slavery or other metropoles they had grievances with. They they had new visions that they wanted to carry into their frontier when they wanted to establish new societies. There were reasons they left. Sometimes it was war. Sometimes it was uh, moral infractions like adultery of a you know, a leader and a group splintered according to, you know, what sides they were on. But he said, you know, they were really entering a moral vacuum. So he was puzzling on what, on what basis would they establish new alliances when they met other, other people, other migrants in this forest. And um, I, again, say that, you know, what they were recognizing is what they carried with them was the recognition that all political organization and all social structure had to be authorized first and foremost by spiritual power. And that was always inaugurated through woman as its primary source. And woman as the most effective mediator of spiritual power. And that also explained the tendency of frontier societies to remain stateless by design. Um, this is a, another you know, may, another big discussion we could have. But basically, you know, the West is very interested with the history of states, kingdoms, um, nation states. But in West Africa, especially, stateless societies were often larger, more powerful, and they're certainly more predominant in number. And by stateless societies, um, I mean collective 
what's the word that I use? Collective self-rule. So these are usually dual sexed. Uh, there were men's societies and women's societies that each had their own prerogatives and business and leaderships and hierarchies. Um, but they had a way of establishing an egalitarianism between them. And they, one of the ways that, that one of the most predominant ways that we see that this, uh, that they maintained their structure is through age sets. So there would be a class, a generation that would be initiated around the time, around the age 20 of men, young men. And then through, um, as they, as like a group of, um, a generation ages, they get promoted over the years at each time they're promoted they're promoted to another higher rank and greater responsibility so they begin as warriors and then they become like counselors and judges and etc until they retire but um very important part of that is that it's also the women's associations that authorize and empower these male age sets to protect them as you know as their military force so both these age sets and the women uh, are acting in defense of home so I'll stop there because I don't want to ramble I want to stay focused on um, what you see as the main lines of interest here and if I'm touching base on the right touching the right notes no, absolutely. This is, uh, I think, giving us a better grounding of, of this concept. So one um, element that I also wanted you to develop for us is, I think there's been, and, and you make this point, a lot of, in some ways, distraction from female genital power because of a focus on the reproductive power of women. Yes, yes. But here, we're talking about postmenopausal women, women right. who do not have the reproductive power, and we're still talking about their genitals. And yet that's not the, that's not the womb, which I think is right. something that we could gloss over, but is actually fundamental here. So what is it about the role that these women hold, their connection to the ancestors and their um, moving past reproductive status that makes them these powerful guardians of morality. And then also I wanted to bring in here the discussion that you have in the book about how can we refer to their gender category? You say that right. Ifiyama Dume proposes a neuter category, but that that doesn't satisfy you here. This is important. I, I, I think that in terms of sim symbols, a ritual symbol, the body is has pride of place. The, the ritual is made to be experienced in the body, and the body and it's the bodily um, places of power and the bodily effluvia. These are all powerful ritual symbols that are always leveraged to give ritual its um, its energy because ritual is made to be transformative. It's made to make something change. It's not um, singing, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. You know, it's not a good warm feeling. It's uh, ritual is its intended purpose is to affect some kind of ontological epistemological shift. 
And the genitals, of course, are, are maybe the most powerful part of the body. They are generative. That's where, you know, the reproduction comes from. That's where, you know, the greatest energetic force, this innate energetic force comes from and resides. So, uh, and of course, reproductive power and the generative power is, is important and it's critical. And motherhood in West Africa, of course, for women is an office. It does change a woman's social status. It is important, but what happens, um, to women is that they have they they have their uh, postmenopausal life when they are no longer the child bearers, but what the in in this state um, it's instead of it becoming a sexless state, according to the Western con, Western African conception, they are embodying a spiritual doubling. Because they are inspired, they are, um, their bodies are reflecting an actual sexual doubling and they have a spiritual doubling. So, for example, when an old woman sprouts chin hairs, she's demonstrating her sort of bisexual nature. Um, and in fact, in the famous, in the famous, Nigerian masking society and performances of Gele Day, which are the celebration of the mothers, capital M, the office of the, these mothers, these postmenopausal women who are known to have spiritual power. There, they have two masks. One is a night bird, which is a bird that transforms itself like the witches at night, and the other is the bearded a bearded woman, which, you know, is also demonstrating the physical and spiritual doubling of a woman in postmenopause. Um, in West Africa, this idea is that spiritual beings have power, but their power transcends any gender. So often primordial beings or the gods or spirits are sexually ambiguous or they're shape-shifting or they're twinned so that they are bi-gendered or supra-gendered. And so the postmenopausal women are these supra-gendered beings who have, who are reflecting and channeling through their very bodies this innate power of um, this, this supra, supranatural um, and supernatural power. And as I said, they're considered to be the living embodiment of the ancestors. By virtue of their age, they are closest to the departed, and the ancestors are considered not just dead, but of course living and living beings, beings who are spiritually, spiritually alive and attainable through ritual, who oversee the moral order. So the mothers are the most closely connected. They're still the living embodiment of those departed but living ancestors, the living dead. They are, <laughs> they are sort of, uh, you know, very close. So. Their genitalia is this, um, as I said, like an, a living altar to 
Now, what I underscore is they're, they're, they're never making appeal to the, the womb or to their reproductive power per se. It is their, their, it is um, the fact, although they will say, you know, they will recognize that they are, it's only reference to the degree that of the, the, the nature of the mother as the generative first, but it's something more than just that. You see, I'm not saying it's not that, but it's more than just maternity. It is now they're they're re, they're referring to their genitalia and and their buttocks, which they also, um, you know, denude publicly in this public form of rebuke and shaming, to to represent you know this secret but sacred site of the moral foundations. So maybe we can bring um, this discussion to some concrete examples of this practice. Yeah. And you mentioned in the beginning, in 1949, the famous Women's March of Gran Basam, but there have been so many cases documented, uh, the Women's War in Nigeria, of this right. kind of uh, protest that combines this worldly and spiritual power. And I think one thing right. that's so effective about your thesis is that it finally connects these um, events that have been kind of isolated in the historiography, but it you give us a way of understanding how they link up. And I wonder yeah. how you how you came to see that and um, the work that you had to do to really elaborate those connections. Right. So thank you so much um, for that appreciation. I uh, that's exactly what I tried to do was um, connect the dots, string the beads of evidence, finding comparative cases and trying to see what was essentially common to them. So I, I when I first started to do the research, I the library research to find some common cases, of course, one of the first I came across was the so-called Women's War in Nigeria in 1929, which was a series of uprisings among the Igbo and Ibibio women in southeastern Nigeria. And they were manifesting a, against an impending British taxation of women's property. So that itself is important because you see that it's not just generally an uprising against colonialism. It was very particularly focused against the unjust taxation of women's property, the lack of respect and acknowledgement of their own purview, their own independent purview. And this points to something that was very important to me. That is that um, I think that I, along with many Westerners, you know, originally had the night, the notion that, you know, everywhere women in Africa were subjugated to male domination and, you know, were, um, never really had much freedom. But in fact, uh, as this book demonstrates completely, um, that's not true. And in fact, the history of colonialism and development and post-colonialism and statehood has been a system, a, a history of the systematic um, loss for women of a lot of power, structural and spiritual, um, to the degree that 
this kind of power is uh, increasingly being subjugated, a subjugated history. So at the time in 1929, thousands of women showed up at the Native administration centers uh, dressed in the same unusual way. They were wearing short loincloths, which, as you know, especially back then was, you know, already a kind of a violation of the of the norms of society. Their faces were smeared with charcoal or ashes. They were where they uh, carried so-called weapons um, and like their heads were wreathed in ferns symbolizing war. They had sticks or ferns or palms that they would brandish and that they would use to invoke the power of the female ancestors. And then all of this while hurling threats and curses um, at these violators of their rights. So that was, um, I guess it was Judith Van Allen, who was back in around 78, wrote a very seminal article that um, also triggered others other, others to... Um, consider what was common among some of these actually pretty common colonial uprisings among women. Um, all too often, I found that these were kind of written off as women's auxiliaries of the largely male-led nationalist revolutions against colonialism. Um, and I, th I say written off because I think they failed to take seriously the degree to which this was true spiritual warfare. It wasn't just symbolic, and it was also wasn't doesn't acknowledge the degree to which the women themselves took it upon themselves as their own separate agents to you know demonstrate their agency and um, militate for their own interests in the same context. So they were parallel struggles and complementary struggles, not auxiliary struggles. Um, so there are many, there are many, many cases that I that I was able to find, document, and trace um, throughout West Africa. And let me see if I can think of some of them. Um, one of them was um, in in. In Cameroon, there's the case of Anlu, which was a women's society as well as a right, and etymolo etymologically, Anlu meant to drive away. Um, and it was categorized as this women's collective disciplinary technique that would be employed against, again, any man who insulted a woman's genitals or who committed an offense of a sexual nature against a woman. Um, and what they would do is they'd sing and dance and they'd proceed against the offender's compound where they'd pour urine or excretia and then these vulgar, so-called vulgar parts of the body were exhibited as they chanted and so forth. But it was used also, again, in protest against the colonial leaders. Also in Cameroon, there was another women's society called the Takumbeng, and they would perform that same right, but also very overtly in political protest. So there were these postmenopausal women, again, very singularly identified that they were postmenopausal, who would expose their genitals, defecate, urinate, etc. And um, let me think, some, another example was um, in colonial Togo, the UA women I think they pronounce it Uwe, Uwe, uh, 
infuriated at the arrest of their local leader in the resistance, the colonial resistance, drew on the voodoo tradition, which includes a form of female genital power. So the market women would move through the city of Lome, kind of gathering force as they congregated and mobilized, and they eventually congregated outside of a prison. This is much like in Cote d'Ivoire. And they were marching and singing, and they chastised and threatened the French and the, and the African collaborators, showing themselves naked before the police and security forces as a means of cursing them. And I should say that, you see, one of, the, one of the points that I make repeatedly throughout the book, especially in the last part of the book that is on the pol- pol- politics, is on the efficacy of these rights. They are, this, this belief in the profound power of the mothers still has salience in the contemporary social imaginary. I mean, people believe that that this is dangerous to see, to ignore, to, um, you know, they take it seriously. And so, so much so that armed forces are known to flee and just turn and move away when they do this. And there are, uh, I referred to a video that I found online of, contemporary Togolese women who are stripping right in front of armed of the armed forces who who just turn and, and and leave you know it's very powerful you ask yourself in the end of your book uh, this question you know about efficacy and if this is a practice that can still be seen or be read yeah by young people, say, who come to the city, grow up in the city, and maybe don't even, haven't ever been to the village that their family might come from, and who maybe would be distant from these practices. And yet you show something quite remarkable in a very inventive way of asking this question. Thanks. You know, because this is, well, I should, let me preface this by saying that uh, a lot of the part three that's really on the focuses on the po- contemporary political instantiations of this, especially in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, during the two periods of the two civil wars there and the decade between from 2002 to 2011. So it was obvious that women were demonstrating in the streets and that this uh, very spectacular, shocking, you know, spontaneous ritual would regularly happen in the context of these wider protests and women's marches that would be happening to rebuke the the both sides both the government forces and the rebels but i wondered you know were were the young people appreciating this was was this generally recognized or um, was this somehow still um, a vestigial work and you know uh, something that only older people could recognize um, was it some kind of pathetic appeal to um, a bygone day when people still believed that these things were truly eff- efficacious but what I so what I did, um, even though I'm not a sociologist and I didn't believe that there would be any kind of, you know, valid, I could get any kind of valid sociological sampling size, I did go into very, very big um, um, high school in Abidjan and designed and, and distributed a survey to a number of classes, about all in all about 100, 100 young people. 
um, average age between like 17 and 20, 21, who would about what, what uh, gestures, what ritual gestures, what what kind of um, icon iconography in West African art, like a kneeling woman holding her breast, you know, what that meant to them. And I was surprised to find that even in very urban metropole like Abidjan, which is very hetero, ethnically heterogeneous, where now generations have been born to people of mixed ethnicity, where many of them have never been back to the ancestral village, where many don't even speak an African language anymore, um, shockingly still to me, that, um, that they still understood by and large the, the, the meaning, the significance of these gestures. And um, the other thing that I did was I, I, I also did the same... Um, uh, what's the word in English? I'm thinking sondage. Survey. Survey, thank you. The survey in the villages, um, especially among the youth that were there, either just watching or participating in Dipri and and the Adjikru version of Dipri. So, of course, I expected that they would have a higher degree of understanding and and by and large, they did. I mean, they had a like 100% understanding of what what that was all about. Um, but you know, I was I was surprised and uh, that they did. The other thing um, subsequent to that, after I came home, was I I was I was aware of and included in my book reactions to these videos online of women performing female genital power. Reactions by and large of the youth because they're the ones online. Um, they're the ones with access to computers and using computers and using the media these days. And very interesting dialogues between among these young Africans to to the spectacle. Um, some are embarrassing. Oh my God, let, don't let this be on CNN. This is just a, this is just another image of Africa's backwardness. And others who would correct them and say, no, no, you don't understand. My grandmother has told me about this. She's even participated in this. This is what it believe, this is what it means. It's a sacred power. It's important. Um, this is a profound and intimate rebuke. And it's serious business. And when women strip, you know, people take notice. So um, one of the most famous examples, um, that well-known examples is, that maybe listeners will recognize, is um, the Liberian leader, um, Geboe. She was, a, she's won a, um, Nobel Prize, Peace Prize for her work in Liberia. She was leading um, an inter-ethnic coalition of women for over 14 years during the Liberian civil wars, trying to end the wars. Um, so ultimately, you know, the women were holding vigils and, you know, marshalling their their moral power to enjoin the men to to end the violence that was just a reprehensible violation of the moral order. 
And eventually they came to peace talks in, in Ghana, um, overseen by a Nigerian statesman. But once they got to Ghana, uh, the, the women you know, took it upon themselves to go by bus to just be there as a force of, uh, to hold vigil and to vigilantly monitor the undertakings of the peace negotiations. And when they got there, they realized that the men weren't taking it very seriously. They were luxuriating in the hotels where they were being put up and being fed nicely, and negotiations had stalled. So the women were fed up. They held a sit-in, linking arms outside the hotel. And um, so what happened was the authorities were called to disperse the women and to arrest Gaboi. And she was so outraged. And she said, I am going to strip. I'm going to strip right here. Um, and so the, the, the chief uh, statesman who was leading the negotiations came out, calmed her, uh, sent the forces uh, away, the police away, and begged their, the restraint of the mothers and went back in, and lo and behold, a peace treaty was negotiated. Um, I have heard that that scene was filmed and is documented in a documentary of well-known one called uh, "Pray the Devil Back to Hell." And I've had many people tell me since since um, they heard about my book that now they understand that scene. They didn't understand why it was that you know her simple threat to strip kind of. Uh, evinced such an uh, an effective reaction, but now once you understand the power of matrifocal morality, the power of this threat of female genital power, you understand the scene. And I think that's something to keep in mind about this book is that on the one hand, it takes us back hundreds of years to understand the origins of this uh, deep-seated moral principle. But at the same time, it comes very close to the present and it has real implications, your thesis for um, conflict resolution today, and particularly in the context of uh, the civil conflict in Cote d'Ivoire and this landscape of extreme sexual violence that accompanied that conflict. Yes. So I, again, in the third part of the book that looks at violation and deployment, I was um, situating, I was giving this contemporary context to my study. So I I was recognizing that civil war, which has been kind of a plague in, in Africa for a generation now, that broke out in Cote d'Ivoire where for some, it was least expected because Cote d'Ivoire was, as I said, such a heterogeneous community or nation, I should say, that had managed to negotiate uh, different claims for so long, actually splintered. And in the course of this bloody violence, the populace was not spared. In fact, they were horribly victimized. And women were particularly targeted Um, sexual violence, horrendous sexual violence was rampant on both sides. And I make the point that I think, you know, rape has always been a a weapon of war everywhere and maybe more and more so as um, 
civilian populaces have been unable, have been, you know, not left out of the fray of the battlefield. They're very much in, caught in the crosshairs of the battlefield, especially in civil war. But what makes it more poignant, especially in this area where matrilineal, matrilineal, matrifocality has been this predominant force, has been this guiding principle of civility and peace and alliances and and identity building uh, to violate a woman's body, to violate the matriline, to putrefy it with rape and you know and and the bastard children that come from rape, to um, to cause the shame and the humiliation not only of the women but the the families that have been made to watch or participate the the communities that have been torn asunder by these violation, this this gross violation of this, you know, most intimate and uh, sacred, sacrosanct space um, is, you know, particularly poignant and horrible. Um, and then I also featured the many calls that the, the way that women were not just the victims, though, because the, then I feature the many ways in which they interceded in the course of protests, public protests against against the war, against the forces, against many things. But among other things, the um, Ivorian women formed unions of women victims of war unions, and they demanded to be held that that the government that the forces on both sides be held accountable, and that there be indemnification of their pain and suffering. Um, and one of the things that I did see on, um, on YouTube that I thought was very poignant was when um, some of the women belonging to this uh, women's union for the indemnification that had been promised to them by the Peace and Truth and Reconciliation Committee of the nation following the Second Civil War. This is now 19... 19- the war ended in 2011. This is now 2015. Um, some of the elder women were gathered outside and they were demanding that there no longer be a stalled release of the list of women who are going to be indemnified and, and what they were to receive and who was to receive it. And authorities came and armed guards tried to chase them away by force. And at this point, the women elders just start um, shrieking and stripping, and one woman strips down and bends down on her hands and knees in the position of childbirth, as you know, the mothers in both senses of the word to evict this, to evince this curse um, out of moral outrage and making this intimate rebuke and this appeal to her genital power to make the most profound. Um, veto of what's happening. It's it's kind of um, an absolute. Um, it's an absolute performance of absolute outrage and an absolute appeal to the absolute authority to intercede. It's yeah, it is quite powerful. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. The title, An Intimate Rebuke, can you tell us where that came from and how you decided upon that as its title? 
Um, yes, I actually, the phrase I borrowed from uh, the British Africanist John Lonsdale, whose work as an anthropologist is on East Africa, and it's very different from mine, but he, he writes eloquently, and in his eloquence always kind of elicits imaginative ideas for me. So, for example, one seminal idea he had was that, um, you know, the public history of Africa is usually conducted from the top down, as I said before, from the, about kings and states and so forth and wars and battles. But, you know, it's not just the focus of the state that it's, but history has also been framed in terms of what he called the crude designations of historical peri periods, like pre-colonial, colonial, post-colonial. And that's always a narrative in which the West figures, you know, as a determining agent. So he was suggesting that must, what might be more indicative for understanding the significance of Africa's past in African terms is to look in what he calls the gaps, uh, things that have been obscured because we've been so preoccupied with those features. And um, along the way, in, in the context of him discussing that, he here is this quote that I came upon and I wrote it down so I would, you know, in anticipation of this question, he, he wrote um, that Insight might be intelligible not only within a cultural tradition, but potentially standing some critical distance apart from it, a confirmation of a conventional practice, but also a startling reinterpretation, an intimate rebuke. So when I read that passage, I knew I'd found my title. Um, it and in fact, I wrote to Lonsdale to thank him for the inspired phrase, and he was very surprised because he wasn't writing about anything anything related to women, to women's history, certainly not to female genital power. Um, so he was surprised, but he was also glad and that I had made this unique application of his phrase to the subject. I and I found it, you know, particularly inspiring. You know, it, to me, it applied in two ways. One is that the mothers ritual appeal to the genitals reveals this most intimate and vulnerable part of the female body as this secret and sacred source of their power, and that they activate it by appealing to that living altar, embodied living altar, to curse those who violate the moral mandates. So that's the intimacy of the body. Um, and the way that but also, the rebuke is also intimate in that it's now, in that it's, first of all, it expresses a right that I call local knowledge. It's, that is, uniquely African reflection on the sources of all legitimate power. And it's a uniquely African form of critique of their own societies. So when the mothers intervene to condemn their chiefs, their kings, and now their presidents, their curse is a powerful critique. And when, so the, that I was seeing that when they conduct the right of female genital power in public, these women elders are standing also, it's intimate because they're, they're critiquing their own society, but they're also standing at a critical distance apart, you know, quote unquote, from those regimes that supposedly are there to represent them, 
but that have obscured them, that have that have suppressed their power, that are doing no better than the colonials, and you know, and sidelining them, and certainly not allowing them to represent their own interests, and they're condemning that leadership for forgetting this fundamental spiritual underpinning of all legitimate authority, um, which I say, you know, the governments uh, in Africa forget to their own, at their own peril. And I think that's where we all might have something to learn from the women. You know, this isn't a prescriptive book, you know, nobody, no scholar has the right to make prescriptions for other people in there. Um, and also, I also make a conscious decision to avoid any comparative leaps out of Africa, you know, draw any hasty analogies between female genital power in Africa and women's naked protests in the West, like FEMEN or other. Because I think that those kinds of surface surface parallels are not going to illuminate the true nature of the African case, which I was most interested in. But, you know, to, I can't help but say that today, right now, in the United States, we've had two powerful uh, movements bottom up. The Me Too movement, this collective public performance of rage, when women are truly condemning the immorality and throwing off the mantle of male subjugation, that is a very charged moment in our political history and our a cult, moment of cultural upheaval in in which the subject of women's moral outrage and how women demand respect and accountability you know, is very timely. And also now, of course, the Black Lives Matter demonstrators are filling the streets of American cities and calling for true justice for all citizens. And again, we see that the power of a timely performative demand, you know, because that's what these demonstrations are, they're performative demand that authority and power be grounded in morality in order to have any legitimacy. So I think that the mother's message and the Black Lives Matter's message is just the same. No justice, no peace. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm hoping that these consonances will raise in my readers and your listeners' interest in this courageous and singular expression of African power and this manifestation of female genital power as a very courageous um, stand for peace grounded in justice. A beautiful, beautifully phrased sentiment. So as we reach the end, I wondered, what is the next project that you're working on? Um, I have two. One is a very short uh, piece that I haven't yet started to write, but I started to research. And it's very much related. And that is, um, it's called, it's an article going to be called Catching Bullets with Buttocks, the quote-unquote obscene African power of Queen Nanny of the Jamaican Maroons. So Queen Nanny was a 17th century legendary leader of the Jamaican Windward Maroons, which was a community of formerly enslaved Africans who escaped to the hills. And under her leadership, they successfully repelled uh, repeated attempts by British colonizers to recapture and subdue them. Um, 
to the degree that eventually they, they were forced to sign a peace treaty with them. And so they, in fact, they got land rights that were granted to them in perpetuity, and they're still a nanny town today. So Nanny's political heroism is recognized and has been celebrated. In fact, she's, you know, on the currency in Jamaica. Her image is on her currency. But what's equally renowned, but, you know, very remains very confounding is that she has this legendary sort of magical religious power. She reputed, reputedly stopped these incursions of the British by catching bullets with her buttocks and sending them back to lethal effect. Um, and also she would boil cauldrons without using any kind of fire. Um, and it would ward off. They, the, the British couldn't find them. It would make them get lost in the forest. These are things that I've heard about in Africa. Um, and so uh, drawing on my book, An Intimate Rebuke, I'm going to argue that this African-born nanny, she was, uh, she was of the Akashanti people in Ghana, um, was deploying this ancient ritual knowledge to strengthen the moral community of the Maroons and, you know, send back the enemy and evict evil and protect the, the village. So, um, and to reveal like the profound spiritual significance as a living ancestor and the word for living ancestor in Ghana is Nana. And of course she was called Nanny. So um, I think the I think the links are clear, and I'm going to try and you know unearth these buried artifacts of her activity and to make the connections to reassert the tenacious potency of this African religious engagement in the even in the diaspora. Uh, the other longer project and that I've been working on for a while is a memoir. It's a memoir on another set of research that I did in Cote d'Ivoire on divination. And uh, I wrote my dissertation on divination in West Africa but and went, af went to do fieldwork, postdoctoral fieldwork after I graduated the University of Chicago. But um, I never managed to merge the two to write an academic book. Um, instead, it began to evolve into memoir as I was, because my encounters with diviners were profound and uncanny, I felt like I was doing less and less fieldwork and more fieldwork on my soul, because the diviners, of course, didn't want to talk about their practice. They wanted to show me, and I had become the the subject of their of study. <laughs> so in order to talk about the degree to which they were effective, insightful, and uncanny, I had to do some revelation about what it was they had seen. So it began to be the story of my first marriage that they saw and were commenting on, and uh, the story of how one inevitably gets changed uh, in the, the self-field, so-called field, that it, you know, of course, we've long recognized that there's no such thing as objectivity anymore. Um, and we've, we academics have been granted more and more liberty and permission to allow for and even celebrate subjectivity and um, reflexivity in our work. 
so that we can write ourselves in. But this was a story that I felt even went beyond the, those blurred genres and to um, and and I began to study and enjoy creative nonfiction and that kind of writing. So um, I've written this memoir. It's still yet to be edited and finally completed, but I hope to do that soon. So that, that memoir is called Ask for the Road. And um, very encouragingly, I an excerpt from that work just won an award from the Society for Humanistic Anthropology um, the 2019 Fiction and Creative Nonfiction Writing Contest, and it's just been published in the June issue of um, Anthropology and Humanism. It's called The Boiling Cauldron, uh, which <laughs> speaks a little bit to Nanny and her boiling cauldron. So you can see these overlapping interests. Well, we very much look forward to reading the memoir. And we Thank hope you. that we can have another conversation when that book comes out. Oh, I'd love that. That would be wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Laura. Thank you, Alyssa. It's been really uh, energizing. And I hope I've done justice to the book and at least um, inspired people to read it. And it, um, I really feel earnest about doing justice to these brave women and their repeated call for justice. Um, and I think, uh, and I, I think it, their bravery, their vision needs to be better known. And so I do hope that people will read an intimate rebuke. Here, here. Thank you. Laura. Thank you. So, thank you. 